Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. God this this morning to Matthew 26 69 and then moving on into Matthew 27 through verse 10 of chapter 27 will you stand with me for the reading of God's word so Jesus has been taken by the mob and brought to the high priest's house where there's a, a rump court, a kangaroo court sitting. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I don't know the man. And immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he cried bitterly. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel together against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. And taking counsel together, they bought with the money the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through the Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. The word of the Lord. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, your word is living and true, and Jesus lived to fulfill it. And we pray, Father, that we will live with similar respect and that it may give power and meaning purpose and direction to us as it did to your son. Father, we ask that you may be with my words and my lips and all of our hearts as we receive your word. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. amen. Please be seated. As we've made our way through these concluding chapters of the book of Matthew, we have seen that that not only have we been told about Jesus, but there have been two stories that have been linked with him as we make our way through. In fact, this morning, they're kind of cheek by jowl. They're joined. The one story is told, the other story is told. As though Matthew, and through Matthew, the Holy Spirit is inviting us 
to compare these two individuals as though they were linked, as though the two individuals are two sides of a coin, and indeed they are. Similar men, similar callings, similar sins, similar internal reactions to those sins. They differ only in their ends, and in their ends they differ eternally and horribly. We must make those differing ends our focus this morning. How do these two men, similarly called, similarly empowered, similarly taught by Christ, of similarly sinful human natures, committing similar offenses, knowing the displeasure of Christ with them similarly, both of whom respond similarly with dawning horror to the effect of their sins, to the sins they committed, how do they go on to such eternally dissimilar ends? Well, the answer is that one man receives the greatest gift God gives and the other does not. That's the difference. It's simple. One of the men receives the gift of repentance, the other does not. Now, there are possible ways, a number of them, to object to this statement. You may not want to grant that repentance is a gift. Instead, viewing it as a personal attainment. You may dislike the idea that repentance originates in God rather than man. You may hesitate at the idea that repentance is God's, as I said, greatest gift. You may say, Jesus, heaven, mercy, grace, forgiveness, those are God's greatest gifts. You may not like the idea that Judas did not repent while Peter did. You may say, hey, they look pretty similar to me in the aftermath of their sins. So let me try to clear up a few of these objections right away at the outset so that we can deal with the more substantive objections without being bothered by those that are lesser. So if you object to my describing repentance as a gift from God because you view it as something that we come to, an attainment that's in, within us, that's, that we're capable of, 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 of practicing ourselves rather than a divine gift, Well, we'll need to consider further to answer that objection. Partially, we need to to answer it by saying, well, what does true repentance consist of? But it may be that perhaps you've just never considered that repentance is actually described by the Bible as being a divine gift, as much a divine gift as salvation itself. You may not find your objection rooted in deep opposition to the idea that repentance like the gift of salvation resides in God's possession rather than man's, you may simply say, well, I don't know that it's a gift. Is repentance itself not within my power? And that may be a foreign idea to you that it doesn't resist, reside in you, the power to repent. So let me say that in speaking of repentance and calling it a gift, I'm only speaking as the Bible does. I'm not the one who called it a gift. I'm not the first one. I'm not the only one. The first followers of Jesus, the the first disciples, were the the first to call repentance a gift, at least in New Testament times. We read in Acts 5 that Peter and the apostles, after the ascension of Christ, after his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, they're forbidden by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders who put Christ to death, to continue preaching in his name. Pentecost has passed. They're out with power preaching. 
The Sanhedrin, the elders of the Jews say, you are not to preach in that name. Peter and the fellow apostles answered the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior in order to do what? What does he go on to say? He is the one God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to save his people from their sins, right? To do this, to do that. You can come. No, I mean, it is that. But he says to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus grants repentance just the same as he grants forgiveness. Not separately, not distinctly. It's not that one is with us and one is with him. If you look to Christ for forgiveness, for the gift of forgiveness, you must also look to him for the gift of repentance because you will not gain repent forgiveness without first being given the gift of repentance later in acts 11 peter's gone by the leading of the holy ghost to the house of that gentile centurion cornelius who called cornelius and joppa when peter returns to jerusalem jewish christians there take issue with him and say why were you going to the house of a gentile you shouldn't have done that peter responds as I began to speak at that house, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift that he gave to us after we believed in Jesus, then who am I to stand in God's way? When they heard this, the crowd who had been objecting, when they heard this, what God had done, they quieted down and they glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Repentance is a great gift. And no one understands better that repentance is a great gift than Peter. In the same way Paul knew it. Both preached repentance because they knew the glory and the power of repentance. Repentance is granted, not earned. Received, not taken. A gift, not a right. Now, you may object to my calling repentance the greatest gift that God gives. And on that, I might be willing to back down. But it's an initiatory gift. It's the key in the lock. It's the thing that sets the house open to you. It's like the, the smile I got one Sunday evening in, in my home church in 1987 from the girl I'd been dating and who I thought I'd just blown it with on the date on Friday night. Turned around, saw the smile. I said, ah, there's a future with Cheryl. Yeah, that smile was her greatest gift ever to me. Better than Nathan, better than, yeah. Why? Because out of that smile flowed everything else. And the gift of repentance is, is so great. It's such a gift from God to be able to say, I'm wrong. And to go to him and say, I'm a sinner, I'm wrong. 
The question is not whether repentance is a gift. It is. The question is not whether repentance resides in, in God's power and not in ours. It resides in his power. The question isn't whether repentance must be given you, that you can't do it on your own. It's given you, and you can't do it on your own. Your heart is hardened. Your eyes are darkened. Your ears are stopped. God must open your eyes and ears and heart so that you can repent. It's a work of God. It's a great work of God. The question is not whether you need God to give you this gift. The question you need to ask this morning is, rather than objecting to the idea that repentance is in God's, in God's hands, given by his will, the question you need to ask is, how liberally, how generously will God give repentance? What do I have to do to obtain this gift? Is God willing to give repentance? Is it freely available? Now, to understand the nature of true repentance, we need to take stock of the natures and the sins of the two men that Scripture places before us. Remember, the, the chapter break is, is put in by men. But by the Holy Spirit, the story of, of Peter's denial and then Judas's remorse come side by side. Of course, you may think there's really no comparison between Peter, the rock on which Christ would build his church, the man that many of us have named sons after, and, and Judas, <laughs> the one who no one names their children after. Peter gets the Sistine Chapel, the St. Peter's Basilica. Judas gets scorn. And you're right, in the end there's not much of a difference. There's <laughs> not much of a comparison. But at this point where the stories are taken up by Matthew again, that isn't clear. Though the fate of Judas is certain by the end of the passage we've just read, Peter's remains hazy. What we have here is two followers of Jesus. Peter is clearly one of the three who have a special relationship with Christ. Peter, James, and John, the brothers that Christ called Boanerges or Sons of Thunder, those three are with him often in ways the others aren't. Yet though Peter's nearness to Christ is clear, Judas's Farness is not necessarily or obviously contained in Scripture. Even at this point, it's not clear to, to many that Judas is far while Peter is close. Certainly at the Last Supper when Jesus, Jesus tells the disciples one of them is going to betray him, there's not a single disciple who says, ah, it's you, Judas. They all wonder. They don't see or suspect that Judas is going to betray Christ. Even when he leaves that dinner, having been identified by Christ giving him the bread as his betrayer, we read in the Bible that no one suspects him. After the piece of bread, we're told, Satan entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he said this to him. For some were thinking because Judas had the money box, 
Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have needed for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. They don't understand. It's not clear to the 12 that Judas is an outlier. Peter and Judas are both disciples. They both, they both preach. They both teach. They both carry the message of, of the kingdom of Christ with power. Judas is included in the ministry of the 12 without any qualification. So much so that when the disciples gather after the, after the resurrection and ascension to choose his replacement, Peter says of Judas, he received his share in this ministry. He had a full share of the power, of his sacrifices, of the public witness, of the personal closeness to Christ. Meanwhile, don't forget that Jesus, at the moment that Judas betrays him, calls him friend. He was close to Judas. He loved him. The Psalm of David that prophesies Christ's betrayal says that he enjoyed sweet fellowship with his betrayer when they walked together in the midst of the crowds thronging the house of God at the worship of the feasts. Sweet fellowship walking together describes Jesus and Judas. Judas and Peter were alike in call, in their ministry, in their closeness to Christ, and in their sin. Both agents of Satan, agents of evil, by the very tongue of Christ. Jesus has just said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Meanwhile, Jesus says of Judas to his disciples, did I myself not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Which is worse, to be called Satan or a devil? Moreover, their treatments of Jesus are equally sinful. You may say, but Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed him. Betrayal. Worse than denial. But is it actually? Is denial worse than betrayal in the, in the penal code of God? <laughs> Does Jesus not say, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven? Did Paul not write, it's a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Is denial worse than betrayal? Is this not a, a serious sin by Peter? If the denial itself doesn't seem bad to you, think about how he aggravates his lies, his, his denial of Christ. I, it's fair to call it betrayal. How he aggravates it as he goes deeper into the sin. Verse 70, he responds to the servant girl who says he'd been with Jesus. We read, but he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that Jesus. Simple declaratives. I don't know what you're talking about. You say I'm with him? No. Verse 72, another servant girl says he'd been with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. So with an oath, it's a vow. He says, by the name of God, 
I tell you I don't know him. That's an oath. Finally, verse 74, after a number of bystanders say he must have been a follower of Christ, that he even talks like they do. Then he began to curse and swear, I don't know the man. <laughs> Calvin says, in this third denial, Peter's unfaithfulness to his master reaches its height. Not satisfied with making an oath and swearing, he breaks out into cursing by which he abandons his body and soul to destruction. For, and this is what he's doing, he prays that the curse of God may fall upon him if he knows Christ at all. He says, may I perish miserably under the wrath of God. God damn me, I don't know the man. That's an awful progression of ever more serious betrayals. And you say this, this is different than Judas. Peter's afraid for his life. Peter's sending out of fear. Judas sends out of greed. I'm not so sure that distinction stands. Fear, fear of consequences brought David to do his worst sins, the killing of Uriah. Fear led Saul to make the sacrifices himself rather than to wait for the priests. Fear caused Abraham to prostitute his wife. Fear caused the religious leaders who believed Jesus was the Messiah to be silent, not to speak up. They believed him, but they feared. Fear. I don't think that God says, oh, you're afraid. You get a pass. Fear as, is as contrary to faith as greed. Finally, and most powerfully, the similarities between Peter and Judas. They have similar reactions once they have committed their sins. They both grieve. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly when he remembers what Jesus had predicted about his denials before the rooster crowed. Judas, realizing what he's done in causing Jesus to be condemned to death, regrets with deep remorse. Apparently, he didn't expect Jesus to be condemned to death. So he takes the 30 pieces of silver he received for his betrayal, and he tries to return them to undo the evil that he had done. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he tells those who paid him, and the chief priests and the elders will have none of it. They say, what's that to us? See to that yourself. And so he goes, and he takes the 30 pieces of silver that he had received, a good sum. It can buy a, a big plot of land. He takes those 30 pieces into the sanctuary, throws them there, and goes away and hangs himself. It's one of the saddest passages in Scripture. Judas joins several men who were once close to God, whose guilt and sin is so great that they can find no place for repentance. Saul, at the end, he doesn't have the courage to go to God, so he goes to the witch of Ender and says, what's going to happen in the battle tomorrow? She says, you're going to die. Esau sells his birthright. 
Esau, Saul, and Judas. Two of them die by suicide. All three mourned their sin and didn't gain repentance. You can mourn your sin until the day you die and not be repentant. Repentance, true repentance, is something more than recognizing sin. What is the one great difference between Peter and Judas? Here it is. The single greatest difference between them. Judas regrets in his own heart. Judas repents before other men. Judas seeks to, to undo the harm that he has done. He goes to those together with whom he sinned and he declares his guilt to them as though they're going to be moved by his confession <laughs> a confession that implicates them as much as it does him he says I sinned he's saying you sinned and they'll have none of it now you may have done all this and more in regret of your sin you may mourn privately you may declare your guilt publicly. You may seek to make it well, to make it right through restitution. You may do all that lies within your human power to defeat your sin. You may hate that sin as these men hated their sin. Every fiber of your being may say, I hate this sin. And certainly this is what drives Judas. But it is not repentance. It is not victory. And it is not the key to the door of heaven. Unless you do the one thing that separates Peter from Judas. The false repentance of Judas from the real repentance of Peter. You're still bearing the weight of your sin. You're still a slave to sin. The one thing Judas does not do and the one place Judas does not go in his false and ineffective repentance is to Jesus. He did not go to the one he had sinned against. He went to the tree and hung himself. All sin is against God. Every sin you mourn is a sin against the name and the holiness of God. Murder is against God, not the one murdered. God alone is holy. God alone is pure. Sin is an offense against God. We sin against God by hurting others. But sin is against God. So it's against God and God alone that Judas sins. But he goes to the chief priests and he goes inside himself. Even more, Judas's sin is an direct attack at Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's terrible. And yet he does not go to God in his repentance. 
Jesus is still alive. There's a sinner on the cross beside him who repents and says, remember me, and is forgiven at the, the dying moment. There's still time, but he doesn't go. He goes to his grave rather than go to Jesus. He would rather die alone in his sin, in his pride, in his kind of unrepentant arrogance against God than go to Jesus. And in this, he is the exact opposite of Peter. Peter is similarly ruined by sin, similarly ashamed, similarly despairing. And yet we believe, and this is conjecture, but we believe because he and John have been together this whole night that because John is at the, at the grave, Peter does go to the grave, we have to believe. We don't know it. Seems likely. What is told us clearly in Scripture is that after Jesus has died and been buried and when the first day of the week comes and Mary and Magdalene and the other women return to the disciples saying, we went out to the tomb to prepare the body, to do things for the body, to put spices on it, and they found it empty. Peter lunges for the door and runs to the tomb ahead of everyone. John gets there before him because he's faster. But Peter is out the door and gone. Now an angel appears to Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. And that angel tells him, he's not here, he's risen, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. What do you think it says? Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Could it be that Peter has ruled himself outside the disciples by his deed? So Peter runs to Galilee. I mean, it's a hundred-some-mile journey. He gets up there. Christ doesn't immediately appear. The disciples get tired of waiting. And so they go out. They do what they know best. They go out and fish. They're fishing and all night. Nothing is, is taken up in the nets. Towards dawn, a man appears on shore, calls out to them, how's the fishing been, guys? Bad? They respond, well, throw out your nets on the other side of the boat. The man on shore says, the fishermen go, we've been fishing all night. Doesn't matter which side we throw it on. There's no fish right now. But being the nice guys, they are, all right, we'll do what you say. So one last heave of the nets on the other side of the boat. And those nets, when they start drawing them back, are so full of fish that it threatens to capsize the boat. Now Peter, the most experienced fisherman in the crowd, shouts. What does he shout? He says, it's the Lord! And he takes his clothes off and he throws himself over the gunwale of the boat and he swims to shore. He's desperate to see Jesus. He wanted to see him at the tomb. He wanted to see him all along the way. He needs to see Jesus. Why? Because only by repenting to Jesus can he truly repent. He has to go to the one that he offended. He's desperate. 
And it's there on that shore that Jesus finally takes Peter aside to do the necessary business for Peter's life and his future. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus had cooked them breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. Said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Peter found repentance when he went to Jesus. This is the central truth and inescapable fact of true repentance. True repentance recognizes sin. So does false repentance. True repentance makes restitution for sin. So does false repentance. True repentance feels terrible about sin. So does false. True repentance proclaims its sin to the world. So does false. The one thing that true repentance does that false repentance never does is to go to Jesus in faith in hope, in love, seeking his forgiveness. This is the heart of true repentance. To seek Jesus, to ask his forgiveness, to go to the Savior who died for you, that he may wash you clean of your sins by his blood. So, we end with the death of Judas in our passage. What would we say to Judas? Because we have some Judases here this morning. We have some who've denied Jesus and refused to bend their knee. They know their sin. They're desperately unhappy with their sin. They understand that they're caught. They want out but they will not go to Jesus and bend their knee and say, I love you. Forgive me. What would we say to Judas if we were to encounter him as he's laying the rope over the limb of the tree? I know what I'd say. I'd say, you don't know God. You don't know Jesus at all, man. How could you think that you are ruled out of any hope by this deed. Don't you know that if you'd go to Jesus, you would receive the gift of repentance? Don't you know that even as you're laying your rope across the tree, that at the cross, a thief is saying, forgive me. And the centurion who's killing Jesus says, surely this was the son of God. And we have to believe that he's saved. Don't you know that salvation is working even as you're damning yourself? Do you think God will not forgive you? 
Do you understand what the Bible says about repentance? It's never too late to go to God and ask for the gift. Two of the greatest wicked kings ever in Israel, Manasseh and Ahab, evil men, killers. Manasseh made the streets of Jerusalem flow with blood. He was such a bloodthirsty, awful king. Both of them, at the end of their lives, repent, and God relents. So you sit under God's threat. You hear his sentence against you, death. And you say, all right, I'll embrace death. I'm a man, I can take it, God. I'll die. Why not have the courage of the king of Nineveh? the city that Jonah was sent to and that he finally went to after all the business with the big fish. That he finally went to and walked through three days saying, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Three days he walks through the city. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days, I'm a prophet of God. God has decreed 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. 40 days and you're done. 40 days, 40 days, goes around and around and around and around and around. Whole city hears it, king hears it. The king says, oh, we have to repent. And from the king to the, to the sheep and the, the herds and the goats, they put on the sackcloth and they fasted. And Jonah, who doesn't like the Ninevites, goes outside town to kind of hope that God will still to send the fire that he had prophesied. And he's outside town waiting, and he's waiting for days. Finally, God speaks to him, says, would you rather this city die than live? What does Jonah say to God? He says, God, I know you. I knew you'd do this. I knew you weren't going to kill them all. God had sent him to declare death to everyone. But Jonah the prophet knew that if they would repent, God would give them life. Repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is the need of your life. Repentance is a gift from God that you can only obtain by going to him and saying, Father, Jesus, give me the gift of repentance. Change me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the, the many, many reasons we have to hope that you will give us repentance. Father, may there be no one here who is beyond that hope this morning. May you give to each of us this great hope that you are generous, that you're gracious, that you love to reward people who come to you with the desire of their heart of repentance. Give us repentance, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.